0: Thank you for listening to the following films podcast today. I'm joined by Timothy Scott Bogart, the director and writer behind the new film spinning gold in the film. Tim tells the story of his late father, Neil Bogart, the man who launched Casablanca records in the 1970s, the label behind music acts like Donna Summer, Parliament, Gladys Knight, the Isley brothers, the village people, Bill Weathers and kiss. The film follows a ragtag team of young music lovers who formed Casablanca records, rewrote history, changed the music industry forever. Big thanks to Bookmans for sponsoring this episode and to Fort Worth for letting us use their song at the end. If you'd like to connect with the show, the best place to find us online is at followingfilms.com or on Twitter by following at following films. Please leave us a review and follow the show on Spotify. It really does help. You can also support the podcast by going to anchor.fm slash following films slash support. Spinning Gold is currently in theaters. I hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this today, man. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, my pleasure.
0: I, I really enjoyed the film. Just first and foremost, I was not expecting the film to have the scale that it does. I was really impressed with the look, the scope um, of this film. And so it's, it is not lacking in ambition. So- <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you. So you my, father told- very, my father would be very disappointed if I lacked an ambition on his story about
0: it. That's true. That's literally how I was going to, I was going to frame that. It's just, this, it makes sense that a film about a man like your father, that would be told this way. And just talk talk a little bit about the process of making a film about your father and kind of your, the personal experience of it versus telling a good story because not all of our stories necessarily make a good film. So this one does. So if that well, makes sense.
1: It, it does. And, you know, I, I think that's a really a big part of it is that I, I am his son, of course. So, so I carry with, um, with that distinction, a great weight of responsibility but more than anything I'm a storyteller who got lucky enough that I got to tell this story so I didn't have to make it up I didn't have to you know acquire it from somebody else the fact that it actually is his story and I got the the um the opportunity to tell it is sort of amazing as a storyteller now um trying to figure out the what part to tell I mean that, that's a whole other a whole other thing and um you know, from, from early on, uh, even at, right after he passed away, and I was young at the time, but people were, were reaching out and, and trying to get the rights and what they wanted to do as a Broadway musical or a movie. Um, There's a lot of interest in it. Once I was sort of out of film school and I was like, starting to do this like as a career, I took on kind of the responsibility and the mantle of doing it and probably spent the better part of the first der- decade just saying no to people trying to acquire the rights. Um, not necessarily that they had a particular different idea about doing it i just didn't know which way i wanted to do it yet or what part of the story i wanted to tell the other thing that happened pretty early on was this sort of you know expectation that because there was all that interest that it would be somewhat easy when when we finally decide that we wanted to do it because i think there's a belief that you know these music biopics or biopics in general just tend to have an easier path they tend to work but they tend to be about people we know. And so it's not the Donna Summer story. It's not no. the Kiss story. It's not the Parliament story. So even though there were a lot of people that were interested, when it came time to really embrace, are we going to go spend money and make this thing? We kept kind of falling back on, but who is this guy and how are we going to market it? And so so it was not an easy path at all, even though there was all this extraordinary interest in it. Um and so uh, I then probably spent the next number of years just kicking it around. And while I was, you know, producing television and producing other people's films, I would find myself in meetings every once in a while. And someone, what else are you are working on? I would just pitch it um, yeah. just, just to try to find it, um, really. And, and, it, and it was, it, it wasn't, I, I actually set it up in 1999. It's a true story. I set it up at, at a studio in 1999. Um, so it's been 24 years of every wow. day literally every day going, how am I going to move this forward? How am I going to push this boulder up this hill? Um, but it wasn't until about almost eight or eight years later w- where uh, um, I was actually in a meeting with a bunch of agents um, and, and um, it was for another actor that that uh, I had heard was interested in the story. And yet I didn't have the story still. <laughs> I had been kicking it around. I just didn't know what it was. And I, and I hadn't been able to commit myself to a particular way for the narrative. And I would try it out in different ways and just sort of tell stories about, well, this is where he came from and this is interesting. And, and I was in this meeting with like 10 people around the table and I was looking at all these faces going, I don't think they're, they seem all that interested. So I got to cut to the chase here. And I said, you know what? Let me just tell you his greatest hits. And I suddenly started telling the story, bouncing around going, let me tell you about the mothership. And let me tell you about, th- and let me tell you how Love to Love You really happened and suddenly there was this just lean in and i realized that's that's how you tell this story you tell it as the greatest hits of this guy's life as he's trying to explain the value of his life and once that happened um i really sat down and wrote the first draft and it was like 200 pages so it was way too long but sure. but it came out real quick and and i i really hit on i think what the uh, the compass of the film was that ultimately it's a movie that's told by him as a director, by him as a cinematographer, by him as a costume designer. And, and every choice was about him going, let me tell you the, the saddest moment. And it was the saddest moment that there's ever been in the history of sad moments. Or let me tell you the most exciting thing or the loudest thing. So everything became in an extremes. Um, and that's how I started sort of dancing around this idea of, of memory and his memory and, what memory really means, um, while holding very um, precious to real historical facts. that was very important to me, even even the way I kind of play with it in the, in the opening, I, that was really important to to not mess uh, w- with the facts too much. Um, that that narrator who is telling the the highlights of his life um, became I think the touchstone that, that ultimately is the film uh, that, that we've made.
0: And, and I think that that's, I'm so glad that you brought up memory, because that was one of the things I was really struck by with this, that our memory is, it's all perception. There are the facts, the way things actually happen, the things that's there. But the way we tell a story is through our emotional state at the time and what it meant to us. And we're always telling stories not in what actually happened and how we felt that moment it's how we feel reacting to that moment now and how we've we've sort of wrapped that up in a neat little bow and what we've learned since then and so i think that the movie has that this really warm center to it that it feels like it's a very it's not a love letter to your father in that sense in a lot of, I I feel like it's him. It is that reflection on a life saying, okay, I wish I would have had a couple more days, wish I could have had, you know, this it's it, but there's, yeah, I wouldn't have changed a damn thing though. And and there's such beauty in that. And you can feel that warmth. And if you had the casting wrong, you Uh would you could not have got this ending and pulled it off. Cause if you had the wrong person in this lead who could have really, it, the actions that he takes in this film, you could push against him very easily and dislike this man, but you are pulling for him the whole time, despite everything that he does
1: every like, and, you know, and I'll tell you, it was, it's only been the last couple of weeks where I'm starting to think maybe they won't dislike him. Because, <laughs> and I mean, that. I've been, I've been in, in screenings some and people really are like him a lot. But he does things that are unlike a bull, except the way I, uh, this was another important thing from the beginning. I wanted to show the messiness of being a human being yeah. without judging the messiness. I just wanted to, to, to express it. And I think that that's a key distinction. You know, so many of these projects, you know, they feel these stories, they feel like they have to be a cautionary tale. You have to come out on the other side going, well, they shouldn't have done this. And, and here's what the character learned. And the truth is, because he died so young, I don't think he learned anything. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean I legitimately think he gets to the end of his life, and, and this is how we depict him in the film, and goes, "No, I, I wouldn't change a thing." So the movie's not a cautionary tale. No, there's something we're supposed to learn about it, but but the core of look at how much life this guy lived look at the perseverance he had look at the dreams that he embraced and that's something universal that we can all have um without having to decide was he a good person or bad person for having not just an affair but a sustained long affair with another woman um the fact that he was a gambler you know i always thought this guy's flaws were his superhero powers. If he wasn't that gambler, he never would have succeeded the way he did. So um, I embrace all of that in the hopes that ultimately, if I didn't apply judgment myself, then the audience could or or could not. And it would be left for them ultimately to determine, um, you know, was the sum of his life, the sum of his life, not one event of his life, was the sum of his life um, worthy um, and so that, that was an interesting choice and it's really only been the last couple of weeks. I'm like, maybe they don't hate him for, for forcing Donna Summer to do love, to love you that way. Well, could. very, very easily. But,
0: and I think that there's the hypocrisy he wears on his sleeve when he's saying, you know, I've never felt like this about a woman before. And that was true. Yeah. At that moment, I had never felt that before. And then I felt it again and I'd never felt it. That's, and that was it, also it, true. There. So it's, it's, you know, and that's, we are complicated, messy people. And the fact that he's owning his imperfections the whole time, it's charming. And I think that you're right. You don't feel the judgment of the filmmaker because I think that's something that comes with age. Cause I'm, you know, 46 now and I'm just getting to that age now where I can start to recognize my parents as human beings with their flaws. And I don't judge them the way that I did. I think in, if you would have made this in your twenties or even probably in your thirties, I,
1: I, that would have probably been a much more difficult place to take it from you know nobody said that before before or asked me about that and i think you're right and and i tried to start making it early on and um i do think there's no question the film that exists today is a product of my life's journey as much as his and all the messiness that i've experienced um and i absolutely believe as I think it probably should, any filmmaker, I, I think it absolutely informed everything. I mean, Jer- Jeremy has has been quoted often to say there was a moment during the course of making this film, and 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 the film had a long journey to start. But then we started it before COVID and had to stop midway, and and wait a year and eleven months to finish it. I mean, so it was a crazy God. journey, which you know I didn't know if I was ever going to finish it. But when we were when we were back finishing, I remember Jeremy looked at me at one point and said, you realize I'm no longer playing your father. I'm playing you. Uh, and, and he was actually, he had seen me, I was at the monitor and I was doing the same with my hands. And I saw him doing the same thing with his hands. And he started <laughs> parallel of the perseverance I had in getting the movie made. And, and my commitment to this dream is very similar to, to the same kind of, um, you know, risk it all commit it all um, that my father had. And so Who I am and who I became absolutely informed what this film, um, I think, ultimately became. And I I think if I made it 10, 15 years earlier, it would not be the same. You're absolutely right. And this idea of
0: not walking away, of not turning around, turning your back on a passion is clearly something you've held on to. Is that sort of the greatest lesson you've taken from your father?
1: Yes, Uh, without question. I mean, interestingly, you know, uh, kids don't know who their parents were. They only know who they became. All right. So my father passed away when I was 12. I, I saw this larger-than-life character, not just in business, in life, in-, in home. I mean, he just was this magical being who put us all on a magic carpet ride every morning. Um, I didn't know until I started making the movie um how dire it was, how scared he was. Um Um, how on the verge of cataclysm he was every day. He kept that um, incredibly well hidden, Um, but through it all, the remarkable nature of his perseverance and his refusal to know from the chorus of nodes around him every day um, is absolutely the the lesson that I walked away with um, from being his son is that, you know, you could choose a different life, but, you know, dreamers, dream big, but without the perseverance to to support the, the necessity of that dream, um, they don't come true. Um, and, 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 you know, gets to the point, you know, towards the end of the movie where he says, probably the, the most important line, I just need a little more time um, to get all of you to catch up to, to us. You know, he, he wasn't wrong about the things that went wrong. He, he just needed to wait long enough to be right, um, and that's a very hard thing to, to, to have courage enough to do. And boy, did he have it! And I mean, you know, I've tried um, and aspired to follow a little bit in, in those footsteps. And it can't
0: just be this model that you had. There's something inside you that has to keep you going for you know 24 years to make this thing happen. So, what was that inner you know propulsion that you had to make this happen?
1: You know, I, I do think. Um, when you lose a parent so young, I mean, different people can go in different directions. You know, my siblings, you know, some of them handled it better than others. Um, But the whole world disappeared. Um, You know, the the, the adults in in our lives really lost their way for quite a while because of this sort of sudden and shocking loss. And so I, at 12, kind of had to pick myself up and focus myself and get myself to where I was going every day. Um, and, and I became very self-sufficient and very self-motivating. Um, and I think ultimately um, that became the engine for me. And, um, you know, growing up in this sort of, you know, wonderland of, of experiences and opportunities and having that all stripped away in the blink of an eye, uh, um, you know, also kind of gave me a taste of what life could be at, at, when living it at its fullest and how quickly it could go away and so i i think and, you know, a little bit dark statement but i think the presence of my own mortality even as a 12 year old kid became a profoundly self-aware a- attribute to my life which was it could all go away tomorrow and, and and that's not a cliche it happened to him and then you know very soon after there my uncle um, uh, also died very young. And so I had a number of losses early on that said, this is for now. <laughs> you, you got this and only this. And and, and that, that really drove me.
0: And I think there's a point when you realize that you have, for me personally, that you have that thing inside you. And it's actually pretty rare. Most people don't have that, that sort of North Star that they find in their lives, something they can drive towards that it's just, most people drive towards what's been given before them. They will take what the road that is comfortable, that's easy, and that's fine. You can live a very happy, full life that way. But having that extra thing that really does drive you to take chances is something that's really unique and rare and something that I think needs to be taken advantage of when you have it. And I think there's far too many people that probably give up on dreams too easily. You know what? <laughs> Today's episode of the Following Films Podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. This week, I went into Bookman's and I was looking for a film, something that reminded me of a film festival, be it a film that got its start in a film festival or something that was perhaps about the experience of going to a film festival. I went over and looked through the 4K discs and the Blu-rays and the DVDs. Nothing was really jumping out immediately, so I went over to the box set section and I came across Ingmar Bergman's cinema. If you're not familiar, Bergman was a master storyteller who startled the world with his stark intensity and naked pursuit of the most profound metaphysical and spiritual questions, the struggles of faith and morality, the nature of dreams, and the agonies and ecstasies of human relationships. Bergman explored all of these subjects in films ranging from comedies, whose lightness and complexity belie their brooding hearts to ground breaking formal experiments and excruciatingly intimate explorations of family life. Arranged as a film festival, with opening and closing nights, bookending double features and centerpieces, this selection spans six decades and thirty-nine films, including such celebrated classics as The Seventh Seal, Persona, and Fanny and Alexander, alongside previously unavailable works, like Dreams, The Right, and Brink of Life. It's also accompanied by a 248-page book with essays on each film. This particular box set has been something of a white whale for my collection, something I've had my eye on for years, and I've just never felt the need to pull the trigger on it. But then I walked into Bookman's, and there it was. And the price was so incredibly reasonable, I had to pick it up. This is something that I've been wanting to dive into for a long time because with uh, Bergman's filmography, I have a lot of blind spots and I'm really excited to dive in and um, learn more about his work because every time I've gone and watched one of his films, I'm always struck by how his work has been so influential that you can go back and look at these films and you'll see images or themes or just these kind of ideas that he brings up or that he executes in a way that have had just this profound impact on filmmaking. And you start to see, I guess, what feel like tropes later on. But this is the source. This is where they came from. And it's just really fun to go back and uh, dive into this work. And so I'm really excited to start going and seeing some of these films that I've never seen before. And so was able to get this at Bookman's. And you should go to Bookman's, too, and see what you might uncover. Remember, Bookman's has your cool covered. Enjoy the show.
1: The hope I always had with this movie, and I always felt kind of silly about saying it, was gosh, you know, there's nothing worse than you. I mean, I love movies. I go to everything good, bad, and different, but there's still nothing worse than you get to the end of the movie and you know, you get up and the first thing you say to the person with you, What are we gonna eat? Like there's no interaction with the experience that you just had. And I always had this aspiration, like wouldn't it be great if like people not only walked out of the aisle, dance out the aisle and, and as they're on their way, they just started thinking, man, that person, those people, they did so much. What did I do today? What did I want to do today that I did today? Maybe tomorrow I'll actually do it. And I always thought that was kind of like sounded silly and precious. And I was at a you know word of mouth screening last night and, and there must've been 25 people after the Q and A who had, they weren't there to say, I, that was my music or, or that was my jam, or I had that record. There were also people who were there to say people who were there just to say that really inspired me to not give up. There's this thing that I was thinking of quitting my job. I was thinking of this, I was thinking of that. And there are these people, you could just see this little gleam in their eyes that my father's story somehow just tapped them on the shoulder and said, no, no, not yet. Don't give up just yet. Boy, that's a, that's a, that's, that's an amazing thing um, to have reached people that way. Oh, I, absolutely. And that's just the the
0: power of film that you can have that kind of connection with people. Yeah. And I, I, I guess it's, would be um, I, it would be really negligent if I didn't mention the music in this and just getting all of these songs together and using these as, as you were mentioning, kind of, this is a greatest hits. These are chapters and you're organizing this around how these individual songs came together, but it's kind of finding them along the way and then when everything hits it hits very quickly all all at once instead of it's not it's you know so it's a bunch of failures that you're finding through and these stories are continuing to build on top of each other so it's not a sort of separate tracks they all are interwoven with each other um from a structural standpoint can you just talk a little bit about that aspect of it and the um and how and just because this is i think a a script that could have easily been lost in that but you do pull this together i think quite well
1: yeah you know well thank you um there's a couple critical decisions i made early early on years and years and years ago that i never wavered from even though many people told me i was wrong um, and one of them was the approach to the music the number of people said you cannot mess with these songs like these are some of the most important masters ever. You can't mess with them. Just play them. Don't mess with them. Just get to the point in the movie and do them. And, and a couple things about that. One is I thought, well, that's not anything new. I, I have about learning anything new about it. But more importantly, I can't compete with Bill Withers doing Ain't No Sunshine. There's no, there's <laughs> no way. And it would no. be stupid to try. I can't compete with Gladys uh, doing The Night Train. Um, And but more importantly, not competing. I don't think it was it provided anything that was interesting. And and what I thought was interesting is that these songs for real occurred for real at transformational moments in all of these people's lives. And what I what I've always had a problem with, although I, I love music biopics. Um, I always have problems where you get to the song and then you stop and the song plays and you wait for the narrative to continue until the song's over, and then you start again. And and I always feel like there's this, this loss of momentum. And, and from the beginning, my father described I described my father as a perpetual motion machine. Yeah. This movie would never stop was crucial. And so I was wrestling with I don't want us to get to a performance and just wait. Um, I want this to be something that is driving the narrative. So I started looking at songs that mirrored really the emotional twists and turns. And, and something like Midnight Trains is a great example. Of course, that was a consequential song for Gladys Knight. But at that moment, it also was the moment my father left Buddha for Casablanca, left New York for LA, left one woman for the other. So when you look at the way we've architected that song to begin with, it's we we enter it on the moment of discovery of how the song is created, which I always thought was a fascinating thing in general to see. Um, And then that song becomes like a seven or eight minute thing where the song actually becomes score to the narrative that's evolving. And then we dip back in and out. So suddenly that song takes on more meaning, new meaning, but yet the actual meaning it would have held for these characters at that time in their life. And once I had that idea, how to choose which songs became very clear about which ones informed the narrative at that particular moment. And of course I was blessed with, you know, cameo Parkway Buddha records and Casablanca's catalog. There was a lot of beautiful stuff to choose from. Um, But once I made that decision also, it was, and I'm not going to do the masters because we know what they are. I want to see the first drafts of music history. I want, to, I want to be there when George Clinton said, we want the funk. And what is, what is the funk and why do you want it? And what does that mean on the, on the journey to understanding what that is or bill withers the first time he's sang ain't no sunshine or lean on me. Yeah. Once I made that decision, it gave me extraordinary opportunity to allow those songs to become something fresh to become something new so that we the audience could feel the same sense of discovery that i know my father felt when he met those people and walked into those rooms and if we just walked in and heard the same lean on me master we've heard for for 40 years 50 years i don't know that it would would resonate as much um, as as transformative for those characters and i think and i hope the way we've crafted them it really becomes something unique and something new and something a little bit surprising. Um, and hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about maybe why those songs resonate as deeply as they do. And I also, I think it's a, I'd love to
0: call out the way you use Beth in this um, just because not only your father's reaction to it, but again, as a narrative device and by the time, he sort of has full circle and he's become the meaning of the song to some degree, which is just, it's just this yeah. wonderful little thing. This thing he's been pushing against the whole time. Eventually yeah. he just becomes that and he's still hates it, but he's pretty happy about it in the end. It's yeah. a, it was a fantastic little device there. So, so um, how do you, I, I don't know what the budget was for this thing. I have no clue. I can't tell. Um, and it's one of those things where I, would, I, I wouldn't I would be surprised if you are absolutely punching above your weight class with this, because the way this looks like one of those, it, I, it looks like something that money was definitely thrown at this, that it feels like you're doing historical, you're doing period piece, but you're also doing stuff that's going all the way back to the 50s in it. And the costumes are incredible in this, the cinematography is fantastic. So this is just from that, the aesthetics of this film, I think it's incredible just to look at.
1: Yeah, we, we were definitely punching above our weight class Okay, at, at every level, um, in every moment, in every choice. I mean, you know, you saw a set. The camera didn't go further because there was no more set. The Castlevika offices had one side. If the camera went to the left, you, we couldn't afford to build the other there side. There you go. Um, so there's no question that, that those things also, although it was very much the, um, creative intent about capturing the energy, the way I, the way we blocked and, and the way we approached cinematography, um, I had a choice to make early on, which was, I wanted all of these scenes and I tend to, I tend to get in trouble for this where I've got like 200, 250 scenes in a movie and like that's, that takes a long time. You need more yeah. days and we didn't have them, um. And so, you know, the choice was get rid of the song, or get rid of half the scenes because you can't go shoot a 250 scene, scene movie or come up with a shooting style where each scene is really just a setup. Uh, and then you're intercutting different scenes that ultimately kind of becomes your coverage. And now creatively, uh, my director of photography and I, Byron Warner, early on made the choice where this was not a movie that, would, that had coverage because I didn't think memory had coverage. Uh, you know, coverage is is when you're showing Good everything. Point. Neil did not want us to see everything. Neil brought us to places he wanted us to. Just look there, he didn't want us to see behind him. What else was he hiding? So once we knew that that was kind of the approach, that, that we didn't want coverage as a general concept because memory – is specific not not you know all encompassing it really zeroes in that allowed us to make choices where we might have you know 15 scenes on a day but that meant it was 15 setups not 45 setups and and that creative choice served the narrative served ultimately i think the the the, the pacing of, of the film um, but there were choices at every step about how to capture what was Critically required of the scope and scale of his world within a a rather confined budget to do so. And I think that's something that actually
0: improves the film because it does immediately give you this point of view that is so clearly his story that he's telling the whole time. And if you are switching back and forth and you're showing these different sides of things, that you could really move away from that. And whether it's the audience is conscious of it or not, I mean, you even make it explicit when he's saying, Very early on, yeah, there was that time that I did those adult films for a minute, but that's, we're not going to talk about that right now. We're moving on. And so it's so clearly this is a story that he is controlling the information that you as an audience are receiving. And so you're, but every element of this is seeing that point of view the whole time. And I think that's just a, I I don't, would you have made that choice if they, if they just said, sure, here's a hundred million dollars, go make the movie you want? Or is that just a lucky accident because you were pushed into a corner?
1: I think it's both, you know. And and I really do look. I I've only done independent projects my whole I, in television. I, you know, I work kind of like you know grown ups uh, for networks, but but for movies, it's yeah. always independent. It's always you never have enough money, You never have enough time. Um, I've been a producer more than I've been anything else yep. actually. Um, um, and and my producerial hat has taught me that the audience doesn't look at your homework; they only look at your final great your final sure. test. So they don't know that you wanted, you know, 75 feet of Dolly track, you know, no. they just know that that felt really exciting when you shot it on a shopping cart because it had an energy to it. And so um, I've always deployed that kind of methodology that don't try to do something you know you can't achieve because the audience will feel that. Do something you can achieve a thousand percent that still has the intent of what you want to do. So that I think as a filmmaker is just part of who I am to begin with. I then always end up coupling that with whatever the creative intent is. And in this case, they, they just married rather beautifully. So our challenges informed, I think um, the creative decisions um, and, and vice versa to some degree. So, but if given like, um, you know, endless sums of money to do it, I don't, I don't know that it would have been completely different because that was one of the first decisions that my, my DP and I made um, which was everything is his memory, everything. And therefore, everything we are seeing is purposeful and specific, um, and 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 we never veered away from that. And and I, and I do love
0: that about this. And again, it's that casting that right actor in that role. It's because if you have the wrong performer in that role with the exact same script, the same look, everything else going there, it, that's really it has to be sold because it's such. I think this is a far more challenging performance, then people might necessarily give it credit right away because of the amount of charm he's bringing to this.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's, that's so true and watching him embody this guy and and make you root for him while doing a lot of not rootable things is only a testament to um, Jeremy Jordan's just magnetic charm, yeah. which my father shared.
0: And they, he just looks like he's having fun. You can feel that the whole time. And who doesn't want to hang out with somebody who's having a good time?
1: Well, but and that, you know, that's another thing that was so important to this movie and and also another North Star for me from the beginning. You know, so many of these biopics are so depressing. Yeah. <laughs> and they're and they're telling lives that did have a cautionary tale that did have a, an unhappy ending. And this one has an, an unhappy ending. But um, there's nobody who was part of it who wouldn't say it was the greatest time of their lives, hence the the final song in the film. Um joy was critical in this movie because anyone i ever spoke to about this time that's what they described it as it was fun it was joyful it was a time they lived a fairy tale that just so happened to be true so capturing that kind of energy um instead of kind of wallowing in the in the, you know the ugliness and the sadness and the despair um was never was never an option to, to do the other version because my experience with my father was someone who just ignited every room and that's what i wanted an audience to feel
0: well and if you think about it if somebody like your father was holding court telling stories about his life at this like going back and reflecting on this would it be a cautionary tale or would this be a celebration of these things and look at, you know, you have, you have drugs, you have mafia stuff, you have gambling, you have all these elements that it, in another film, you feel like, oh, well, okay, I see where this is going to happen. What the end result is going to be of this. And and it's just not, and that's not the story that I assume your father would have told about himself.
1: Never. I, I truly believe, I hope this is a story <laughs> he, he would have told. Um, warts and all because he would have liked people to see look even then you like me i think he would have liked challenging what what he did um um, yeah i i i think so i think this is the version he would have wanted to make
0: and i this is something that i rarely do but i believe you're playing at the phoenix film festival uh coming up and i you know i had a chance to watch this um, on the screen, or did that, and I'll be covering the Phoenix Film Festival, and I'm I'm gonna just sit down and watch this also because I had I, I want to see this projected, I want to see this in a big room with a lot of people, so I'm definitely. Let me tell you, I,
1: I know. Uh, thank you for that. Please please do. Uh, I will tell you. Even my brother Evan, you know, who who did a big screening for the Grammy um, the Grammy community last night, you know, who's seen the film 150,000 times, e- even in theaters, but like in mixing rooms, hadn't seen it in a theater with people and 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 i hadn't either too recently it plays i know that's a cliche you got to see movies in a movie theater no you don't you really do have to see movies in a movie theater a movie like this is a communal experience and watching people laugh and and guffaw and and dance and sing is so much part of what my father would have wanted and how i crafted the film so to see it on a screener i just don't think it's the same movie Oh,
0: I I know that. I you're always kind of doing that equation in your head of what would this be like if I weren't watching this, you know, mirroring this on my TV in the living room and that that kind of thing. They've it's gotten a lot better than it ever has been before.
1: It, it, that's true.
0: But, but, but not the communal experience. The that's t- the big part of it. Um, Where are the laughs that I wouldn't have heard that I didn't know would have had that kind of thing? That's always the surprise
1: to me. By the way, there, there were there were laughs last night when I was. I think I, I didn't know that part was funny, <laughs> I'm, I'm so I'm more happy that it was. And, yeah. um, only get in a communal experience so that's great i i'm thrilled to hear that you're gonna
0: do that no i i dug this one man this was a great film congratulations i love this um don't take 23 years 24 years for the next one i want to see another one within that you know cut that in half at the very okay, I,
1: I, actually actually I'm, I'm just back from italy where i just wrapped uh my, my next film um, oh so
0: fantastic be Much quicker than 20. <laughs> Good. Good cuz I'm a fan man and I want oh, to I want to check out whatever's coming down the pike next. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you Tim Ta- and congratulations on the film. Had a lot of fun thank with you. it. All right. Take care, man. Bye. Time enough to figure
2: you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Get me hope